Good morning, everyone. We haven't done a children's draw in a few weeks, so we're going to do that right now. And kids, if you you can do you can do the little sermon notes page like this. You can do a random drawing. But if over the next 25, 30 minutes, you draw a picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt and draw a little triumphal entry picture with the palm branches, however you want to do it, you can make it uh, very literal, very abstract, then I will give you guys, each of you, it won't be a draw, next week, Easter Sunday, let's go bigger, go home, you're going to get like an awesome prize pack. So... I need a number between one and six. I heard five first. One, two, three, four. Avery, awesome, congratulations. Forgive, look at that, Rick, she was listening. That is, whose kid is that? Oh, Pretty amazing. Congratulations, Avery, we'll get you that. Uh, e-gift card from chapters. Okay, so this morning is sort of like an extended reflection. We are going to be focusing and bringing our attention uh, eventually to Matthew chapter 21, and that's the triumphal entry, which we've just uh, seen play out in that cute video. So I invite you to go there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, or uh, it's in your uh, notes that you grabbed on the way in. Uh, A few things I want to cover first, though. So in this first section, I just want to share a little bit about what is kind of coming up next for our church. Um, Rick mentioned the Good Friday service at 7 p.m. Really want to encourage you to uh, show up for that, not just physically, but be fully present for that. Uh, it's a short, compact service, but it's also a very, uh, a very powerful, meaningful one. I'm going to be reaching out to our church this week. Because there's, we love to get a number of different people from the community involved in readings and different ways of engaging. And so as I send those emails out tomorrow, I uh, really hope that a lot of you will say, yeah, like I'd like to be a part of that. Easter Sunday, bring some goodies, like Rick said, maybe a little bit before the service. Plan to stay another half an hour after and just connecting. It's always a great, awesome uh, energy and vibe on Sunday morning uh, of Easter. Um, and it's a, it's a good opportunity to invite a friend. This is a time of year where the, uh, there's a willingness and there's an openness to maybe check out church. And I'm, we're going to keep things simple on Sunday. Lots of, uh, lots of songs, lots of celebration, and a, really me- a message that really speaks powerfully uh, and clearly to the hope that Christ provides. After Easter, uh, we're going to be moving into an extended series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I know some of you are newer to our church, so you kind of dropped in and started running with us during our finance series. And that's what's called a topical series, where you take a topic and for a number of weeks you explore different biblical themes and passages. That's not actually my preferred mode of teaching and preaching. I actually like to settle into a book for a while and move through it chunk by chunk, chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, depending on how dense it is. And I've been thinking and praying through and Rick and I have been discussing what book we do next. We had just gone through 1 Samuel and spent uh, a huge amount of time in in 1 Samuel. And we kind of uh, jumped back and forth, Old and New Testament, so that we're getting some balance from the whole counsel of God. But 1 Corinthians is where we are going to be camping out for the next major season. 
of our church. And so I say that as a prompt to invite you to begin thinking about just learning about 1 Corinthians. We'll start with some historical context. I'll be sharing some videos in the Summit newsletter on Fridays, and you can do as much of a deep dive as you want. But it's a really, really powerful book that I think speaks pretty um, incisively to uh, the current cultural moment for the church, for individual Christians. And it, it's, it's a church, it's a letter written to a church trying to figure out how the death and resurrection of Jesus connects and plays out to very ground level realities and tension points and challenges that these early Christians were walking through. So if you have studied this book before, it's going to be fresh and powerful and interesting. And if you haven't, this really could be a, a turning point kind of series for your life. Uh, and lastly, uh, a late coming uh, announcement. I did want to give an update. Uh, we sent out an email earlier in the week, uh, but just ask for your prayers for the Flessiger family. Uh, Michael's mother, uh, Fran, uh, suffered a sudden uh, fall and an operable uh, brain bleed this week. Uh, she passed uh, the day after. And the Flessiger family has asked that I ask you that you would pray for them, that you would lift them up. During this time, obviously, it's tremendously shocking. They were actually just celebrating Fran's birthday the evening before. I know Fran is known to, to many of you. And they are just, um, yeah, in a tailspin of grief and shock. I asked Carrie if there's anything uh, beyond prayer as an extension of prayer that we can do for them. And she said right now meals would be really, really helpful. Uh, Michael's dad is kind of... They're kind of pulling in Michael's dad right now, and he's living with them, and they're kind of just kind of um, moving through life day by day together right now. And so if, if you know the Flessigers, um, even if you don't, I, I really, there's a prompting on your heart. If there's anything that says, okay, I think I could do something, just do it. Just pull the trigger. Don't wait for my permission. Contact Carrie. Set up a time to drop off a meal. If you're not a good cook, go and buy like a really high quality frozen lasagna that you can drop off or some other kind of uh, easy meal for them to heat up. Um, if you don't have their contact information, please reach out to me. I will get that to you. But when you are in that uh, fog of both shock and grief, yeah. food actually is one of the most powerful expressions of care and mercy you can give to people. And so I really would ask that all of us uh, consider how we can step up and um, provide support and care for them during this really uh, dark, challenging time. Let me just take a moment to pray. God, we lift up the Flesker family. Ask for your mercy and grace upon them. Upon all who are walking through grief and difficult and dark things right now, God. Sudden losses places of pain and confusion, disorientation, that where it just feels like your footing can't be found. You can't find purchase to grab hold of anything. It's, uh, it's such an awful, chaotic feeling, God. So we just pray and ask both for them and for those in our community, those in the churches across Nelson who are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that you would draw near to them, that you're a presence in your rod and your staff would comfort them, that you would vindicate your word that says a 
a smoldering wick and a bruised reed is safe with you. That you won't blow out a smoldering wick. You, you won't crush a bruised reed. You are gentle and close to the brokenhearted. We trust you to vindicate um, that word for the Fusker family in a mighty and powerful way in the days ahead. Amen. Okay, I want to share with you a little bit of a pastoral update. I don't uh, often do this, but I think probably I should. I tend to jump right into like content and teaching, and that has its place, obviously, from a pulpit. Um, but I think it's important for you guys to know where I'm at and my own growth and journey, journey, especially coming out of last summer and sort of my uh, burnout, moving into some time off, sabbatical, recovery and recuperation from burnout. And if you've been tracking with me for a while, you've been part of our church for a while, you know I use the great commandment, heart, soul, mind, and strength. as kind of a way to organize my own understanding of what God's doing in my life as a way to organize my own discipleship. I encourage you guys to use that as at the start of the month to just, just be attentive to maybe how God is calling you to grow in heart relationships, soul, your own interiority, reflection, uh, prayer, worship life. In the area of your mind, growing in your understanding of scripture and biblical worldview and, and strength, how you are being invited or challenged by God uh, to serve, to use your gifts, to pursue justice, to live out the generosity that um, Rick's done such a good job of um, leading us through during uh, that financial portion, portion of the last series. So I have organized this update around those kind of quadrants. In the area of heart, I am learning how to be salt and light among unbelievers in a way that I've never had to before. Uh, in January, I enrolled in a, an intensive six-month um, online life coaching course, certification course thing. Um, and that is with a group of 12 people. We meet uh, for six hours a week. And I entered into that for a number of reasons, but one of them was to sharpen uh, my skill and my skill set, my tool set, and being able to help people move from a place of stuckness and to follow Jesus out of those places of stuckness and actually make progress in their life. That's a huge passion of mine, and I wanted to grow my skill set in being able to do that. What's been challenging for me, but I think really, really good, is I've never spent so much intentional time with uh, I believe everyone else at this point I could say, I don't, I don't think anyone else is a person of Christian faith in the class. Sincere, dedicated people want to help people. But I've never spent so much time working through so many consequential, consequential issues with that number of non-Christians before as an adult. And it's been really, really good, but also difficult to figure out how do I approach some of these topics in a way that is clear and kind, speaking the truth in love, being a witness, and also knowing when to hold my tongue because there is a very broad spectrum of how these people decide to move into and through what it means to help people, what the goal of coaching and life and success looks like. And yeah, I just wanted to share that if, if um, if you have experience in that area and you have wisdom to share, please share it with me because this has been a crucible, um, but, a, but a really, really good one. And I'm learning a lot. As part of that, in the area of soul, 
I'm, I'm doing a little bit more contemplation and it's causing me to come back to some pretty central questions around like, yeah, what, what do I think is the telos of life, the goal of life? How would I artic articulate that? What do I want the next half of my life to be about? What kind of pastor and leader and, and, and coach and when I'm given a place of some level of authority in someone's life, as an under-shepherd of Jesus, where am I shepherding them to? How do I do that well? And I've been really trying to slow down and be attentive to getting very clear on who God has made me and what are my gifts and my skills. Because if you know anything about my temperament and my personality, I'm, it's pretty easy for me to just lean into what I think other people expect me to be. And there's a good side of that. But there can also be a side where you actually undermine your own integrity. You can actually bypass what God is calling you to do in the service of trying to meet other people's expectations. In the area of mind, uh, I found after years of just reading through large chunks of the Bible on my own, I found that there's kind of a return for me to simple devotional reading. But what I do is I kind of have four devotionals on the go, which probably sounds more impressive than it actually is. Because each of the devotionals, I just cycle, I make sure each one of them kind of connects somehow to heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I just kind of go with the flow every day. I'm like, oh, I want to do like the soul devotional today. So I'm going to do that. And that's day two. And, but I won't, you know, do all four every day. But over the course of two or three weeks, I move through devotionals, which are teaching me. And I, I think there was a pride thing there for a while where I thought, well, devotionals, even kind of relatively simple ones, um, maybe aren't that helpful for me or I, I'm kind of beyond them. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was aware that I was avoiding them. And I was just kind of moving over large tra uh, tracks of scripture. And I realized, no, like, even though teaching is my passion and I love to extract knowledge, I need to be taught too. And I need to sit under uh, wise people. And so God just put a thing on my heart to say, yeah, like just start, yeah start engaging my word in a different way, but kind of using the heart, soul, mind, and strength template as a way to challenge myself, to make sure that my faith is still being built holistically and integratively, and there's a balance there. And lastly, in the area of strength, um, one of the sort of meditation mantras, the uh, summation of what I felt like God put on my heart coming out of my sabbatical was just the phrase slow and solid that was going to be a defining, those were going to be defining words and a defining dynamic of this next major season of my life. I've often operated, well, I've often been tempted to operate fast and hollow uh, and just getting a lot of things done because I have, uh, to my detriment, placed a lot of my identity in accomplishing things and being successful and achieving lots of things. I've allowed historically a lot of things to occupy my schedule and I've kept very very busy but with that busyness comes frenzy and distraction from deeper things so I really felt like God challenging me to say Jeff you need to slow down there is kind of a hum of activity that I like I like having a richness a fullness to my schedule but I I do feel and sense God teaching me that I want to serve and give. I want to minister. I want to pastor. I want to lead. I want to do those things robustly and well. And what that means is I lead and I do those things, but only to the extent that I can actually 
retain margins that allow me to reflect and to pray and to process what's happening. Because there's been a lot of seasons of my life, I, I don't know if any of you can identify with this, where just the week goes like that, boom, the month, boom. And it's, and it's not that I'm squandering, I'm doing important things, I can look back, but there just doesn't seem to be time to process. I can't even really be attentive to what God is doing because there's always something next. And that's not God filling <laughs> my life with all those things. That's me just seeing all the opportunities and out of my own insecurity and need to accomplish. I'm just more, more, more. So even though it's well-intended, it, it is unhealthy and dysfunctional. And I'm really trying to lean into slow and solid. And this is a good time of year to remind myself of it because that uh, phraseology uh, uh, was, is used by Tom LaHue, who's a uh, Christian PhD and works with the, uh, people with the Enneagram and Christians to understand how the Enneagram can help them in their spiritual growth. And he says for Enneagrams, Enneagram threes, which are my type, he said um, he always uses the symbol of a uh, Easter bunny, chocolate Easter bunny. And he said, the temptation for someone like me is to present in a way that looks good on the outside. The gold package, little bow, little bell, the lint bunny, the, oh, it looks really nice. But his question is to people uh, of my disposition, is the bunny solid or hollow, like on the inside? And I'm sitting here, and, I, and the first time I heard that, I had tears welling up in my eyes. I'm like, how's this guy making me cry talking about Easter chocolate bunny? <laughs> he went right to my heart, Tom. Uh, but that has really stuck with me, and God just cemented that in the fall. To say, Jeff, what you actually are looking for is a rich life with me, and for you that's going to mean slowing down and be that solid solid leader be the solid pastor not the don't operate out of the hollowness and so as i continue to learn and make missteps and be attentive to okay try things this week uh, that is a uh, kind of a larger traje trajectory that i'm trying to live into and i share those things with you to um remind you yeah i don't need to remind people who are really close to me but maybe to the rest of you like I'm not some kind of super Christian. I'm not some kind of amazing pastor who's got all the answers and they've got everything worked out at this point. I've been following Jesus for a long time, but there are always new things to explore and new ways to grow and new paths to venture down. And so if you are in a place where you're like, I feel like the, over here it's kind of okay, but I feel like things are um, out of sorts. It's, I'm, I feel like it's a mess. I feel discouraged by what, I, by what I'm living in over here. Hey, you're in good company. Let's talk. Uh, keep showing up here. This is part of what the journey is, allowing God to put us back together and to reform us and to reshape us and to prepare us for the next season of ministry. Okay. I want to talk this morning specifically about preparing for Holy Week. So today kicks off Holy Week, and it's a week that Christians actually should prepare for and not just move into and see where things happen at the you know see where we're at at the end of the week it's actually important to prepare for holy week in luke 9 there's this really interesting phrase that only luke talks about of all the gospels he says as jesus was um preparing to enter into this final week it says in luke 9 51 that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. 
And that means that Jesus entered into a new kind of resolve. There was a new kind of intention. There was a recognition that, okay, this is the end game. Everything in my life and ministry has been building to what happens over this next week. And he set his face to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is going to be the context for these things happening. And so if Jesus entered into this week with that kind of resolve, I think we should too. Even more so because we're on the post-resurrection side of Holy Week. So we should be going into it in recognition that, oh yeah, for sure this is the most important week in human history. And so it needs to be treated as holy. And that's why we call it Holy Week. Holy here is much more rooted to the Hebrew understanding of holy, kadosh, which means to be separate, to be dedicated, to be distinct from normal things. Not that normal things are bad, but holy things have a particular dedication. They are sanctified. To celebrate Holy Week is to recognize that something happens in this window of seven days that is unique in human history. It's the hinge of human history. And the gospel writers want us to understand that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, devote a third of their gospel content to the final week of Jesus' life. Right? If, If an author did that in a biography, you would rightly infer, oh, like the last week is super important then. It's not just a flat thing where you're like, oh, a little bit, you know, adolescence in the 20s. The final week is massively consequential. And John dedicates half of his gospel to the final week. So we should be paying attention to this. This is a holy week. It's meant to be separate, to be other, to be sacred, to have a heaviness, a weight to it. And that's because this week doesn't unfold in an arbitrary way. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem because over this time frame, he is going to do things and say things and live out things that are loaded with significance. All of them. Nothing's accidental that Jesus ever does, but everything comes into full view here. And today is Palm Sunday where Christians around the world are reflecting on the triumphal entry. So I want to read through that, and I just want to draw your attention to a few of the symbols there, or maybe invite you to be attentive to what sticks out to you, and leave you with a framing question to move into Holy Week with. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them, and, the, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him 
And those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I want us to kind of feel, even though it's fractional, I want us to feel sort of the energy of that moment because you can't necessarily, I mean, sometimes it's hard for us to inhabit it imaginatively. So I'm going to invite you to do this. I'm going to invite you to stand. I know we're a reserved church, so we're going to do something that's very unreserved, and that's going to be awkward, but we're all going to be awkward together. So that's like a safe, the safest kind of awkward space you can be in. And I just want us to begin clapping. And then don't worry about saying it together. You don't have to speak in unison. If you do, you can, but if you don't, I just want you to start randomly saying, Hosanna. Just say Hosanna. Say it in a loud voice. Just be bold. Hosanna. Hosanna. It's awkward. Push through the awkwardness. Hosanna. You want to say it a little bit louder? Hosanna! Hosanna! Sing it loud. Hosanna! Woo! Okay. You're released from the awkwardness. You can take your seat. Now, that's a, no, not even 100 people, right? You multiply that across a distance of a few miles in the tens of thousands of people. You can understand why Jerusalem is stirred. This is a major event. This is attention grabbing. What do you notice about this entry? What stands out to you? Or just even as you read it this morning, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of wondering what's going on there. Anything that stands out to you? Because this is a loaded passage. This is symbolically loaded. There's a lot of things happening at the same time that you and I might not have the lens to see, but even if we make note of the odd, strange parts of the story, we can sort of disentangle some of the confusion and create some clarity around some things. What do you notice? What's, what stands out to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jesus riding on the colt, on the foal of a donkey, never been ridden. And this is to fulfill a very specific prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that says, your king's coming to you. And the way you're going to know that is he's going to be riding on a donkey. If you know anything about uh, Middle Eastern uh, uh, victory processions, you would normally have the king or a general riding into town on a war horse, like an Arabian charger. And that was a symbol of dominance and power and might. And a donkey was kind of a symbol of peace and gentleness and humility. And so Jesus presents himself to these people. But right away, he's wanting to signal and give them a, for them, not so subtle clue about what kind of king he's going to be. What else do you notice? Oh, super into it. Probably not the whole city, but a dedicated group of people 
that had heard of Jesus' most recent miracle, the raising of Lazarus, and they are pumped. They are excited to see Jesus. What, what are they singing? What are, the, what are the words? Hosanna. That's important. That's a Hebrew phrase. It's a, well, it's a, it's actually two things. It's a plea and it's a proclamation. So the plea is save us. Save us. Hoshana. Save us. But the, the, the proclamation is also, in a sense, a praise of gratitude to God. You do save. You save. You're the saving one. And what's interesting here is um, Aizus, which is the Greek uh, translation of Jesus' name. There's no J in the Greek alphabet. So you have Aizus. That is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means God saves. So Jesus' name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, Joshua, God who saves. And that's connected to Hosanna. So when the crowd is saying, Hoshana, save us, you're the one who saves. You know, part of the, um, the irony you can read back into this is that what they're actually saying is, Jesus us. Jesus us. We, w- we want you to be who you are. We think you are the saving one. So these layers of... Um, yeah, these uh, really sophisticated layers of understanding of who Jesus is. Well, what else do they sing? What do they, what do they call Jesus? Uh, not the King of Kings. What do they call him? Son of David. That's, that's the title that's used here. And Son of David is a messianic title. And there's an interesting um, echo happening because the literal son of David, Solomon, at one point rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. You can read about that story in the Old Testament. And he does that to validate the fact that he is the actual successor. But there's a prophecy that says another son of David, who will reign forever, is going to come. And when these people are excitedly saying, you know, son of David, they are proclaiming in a way that's very explicit to them, we think you are the saving one. We think you are the seed of David that's prophesied about in 2 Samuel, that you're the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament story. Anything else you notice in the passage? Hey, one more thing. Oh, yeah, this is so good, Kevin. So, palm branches... There's a number of symbols which meet in the, in, the, in the palm branches. But what's important for you to at least understand is this is a volatile display. This is incendiary for a few reasons. 164 BC, Maccabean revolt. The Maccabees, which were a Jewish group, a family led by Judas Maccabee, Judas the, uh, Judas the Hammer, overthrow the Seleucids who were in um, occupation of Israel at that point overthrows them, returns Israel under the rightful rulership for a short period of time uh, under God's people. That's part of what's tied into the celebration of Hanukkah for the Jewish people. And part of the commemoration of that victory was the Maccabees had coins printed, and on the coins you print palm branches. It's a military symbol of victory over the enemies of God. So when you have people, Jewish people, waving palm branches, 
But you are Roman authorities looking at that. What does that signal to you? These people want a revolution. These people want want to overthrow Rome. And how do the people want to overthrow Rome? Because they're waving palm branches, how do they want to do it? Violently. They're pumped because Jesus is going to lead them to kill and overthrow the enemies of God. And finally, finally, God's land will be ruled by God's people and the enemies of God will be subjected and they will be dominated by the rightful rulers of the world, which is God's people, Israel. That's the excitement. That's the screams and the chants. And you can see how this creates, moving into these final few days, a massive amount of controversy and tension and conflict and attention to every single thing Jesus does. Because the people are saying, oh, this is so exciting. We know it's coming. We've seen this script before. This is the real king. Judas Maccabee overthrew the Seleucids just for a period. But if this is the Messiah, he's going to overthrow these kingdoms forever. Our struggle is over. And Rome says, who does this person think he is? And what kind of movement is this person, person actually starting? We know you get to the other end of this Holy Week and we can say, yeah, Jesus is a king. Jesus comes to save. Jesus reveals himself as God. But through all of it, you, I hope we have ears to hear maybe in a fresh way this year, Jesus does not fulfill the expectations of his people. There's a, a number of massive curveballs that Jesus throws the way of people who are like, oh, this is what's going to happen, right? We're so excited. And by the end of the week, there's really a handful of people who are still with Jesus. And the reflective question that I'd like us to think through and come back to every day this week as we move towards Good Friday and Easter is this. Are we ready for Jesus to take us in a different direction? Are we ready for Jesus to take us in a different direction? All these people on Palm Sunday, super pumped because they thought they knew what Jesus was going to do. And he was there to fulfill their expectations. He was there to make their life awesome. He was there to make them successful and to put them on top, to turn them from losers into winners. So exciting. But as the Holy Week progresses, more and more people get disillusioned and disenchanted with Jesus. And that can happen to us too. Are we ready for Jesus to take us in a different direction? Everyone is excited to celebrate Jesus when they think that he is going to fulfill their hopes and dreams. 
But discipleship is a commitment to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to continue to sing Hosanna, you save. Even if the path Jesus takes us down is painful, awkward, forces us to forces us to confront things about ourselves or each other that are very, very difficult and demanding that lead us into different kinds of death instead of just victory upon victory upon victory. Do we see how Jesus saves and how it's so often not what we expect? And is our reaction to Jesus and our excitement kind of conditional on Jesus leading us into our best life now? That's sort of the, the hinge of Palm Sundays. Lots of people celebrate Jesus, but are you going to keep celebrating him when he leads you towards the cross? When he calls you to take up your cross and follow him? This has implications for you whether or not you're a believer, not a believer. And both are fruitful to be thinking through and praying through as you move towards Friday. Palm Sunday is a very, very important entry point into Holy Week. I want to encourage you. I put a reading from the Gospel of Matthew in the Summit newsletter on Friday. It's like a reading for every day, like what's happening on you know, Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You can track that along if you didn't get it, or you don't, you can just literally Google daily readings through Holy Week, and there's lots of stuff there that will um, allow you to track each day, read into the story, put yourself there, say, where am I in these stories? Where is Jesus challenging me? All with the larger question of, am I actually prepared to allow Jesus to take me in a different direction? Ask that for yourself as an individual or follower of Jesus, or maybe as someone who's skeptical and not a follower. Are you willing to let Jesus take you in a different direction? As a couple, as a family, as a church, are we willing to allow Jesus to move us in a different direction? Today we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to take part in this together. And this is kind of like the launch of that preparatory period. We are going to use this time to allow God to focus us in on these next few days, this holy week, to set our faces and our resolve to say, I'm not just going to float through this week. I'm going to take time every day to walk with Jesus as he moves towards the cross in an empty tomb. Let's pray.